smart mouth Drawing me in and you kicking me out You got my head spinning No kidding, I can't pin you down What's going on in that beautiful mind? I'm on your magical mystery ride And I'm so dizzy Don't know what hit me But I'll be alright My head's underwater But I'm breathing fine You're crazy and I'm out of my mind Cause all of me loves all of you Love your curves and all your edges All your perfect imperfections Give your all to me I give my all to you You're my end and my beginning Even when I lose I'm winning Cause I give you all of me And you give me all of you oh. How Welcome many back. times do I have to tell you What's with the bumps you ask today? Well, it's, it's Valentine's Day of course uh, so that's what's with the bumps. And so we're bumping Valentine's Day. Talked about Lupercalia a little bit. Not going to ruin Valentine's Day too much. But, you know, history matters to finish the thought. Uh, history matters. I was I was painfully thinking of the Iwo Jima flag raising controversy. As you can, you know, you can, Iwo Jima flag raising controversy. Yeah, that's, I mean, you can search that and search engines tell you, I mean, there's the Time Magazine article uh, back in 2020, for example, the famous Iwo Jima flag raising photo captured an authentic moment, but gave many Americans a false impression. So from 2020, this Sunday marks the 75th anniversary of what is arguably the most famous news photo of all time the shot of U.S. Marines raising an American flag on the Japanese island of Iwo Jima, captured by Associated Press photographer Joe Rosenthal, AP press photographer. And so, you know, I mean, this kind of tells you something. Speaking of, I mean, this this reminds me of um, John Pilger talking about embedded journalists. Has become This has become a timeless symbol of valor and unity. Despite the photo's renown, however, it has been dogged by a controversy over its authenticity. Shortly after the image appeared, some of Rosenthal's rivals whispered that he had staged it. It was an ugly rumor, where it painted Rosenthal as a charlatan, and his photo, which was published on the front page of countless American newspapers... Uh, as well as in the pages of that week's issue of Time as nothing more than a hoax. This reminds me of uh, James Corbett's 9-11, A Conspiracy Theory. This actually happened, you know. The raising of the flag actually happened, and if you suggest otherwise, then... 
you know, obviously you're a bat, you know what, paranoid, tinfoil, dog abusing, baby hater who will be reviled by everyone. And if you love your country and freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie and your grandma and Valentine's Day, you will never, ever express doubts about any part of the Iwo Jima flag raising. And uh, James talked about that. He mentioned somebody uh, said something about um, the 9-11. What did, what did the person say? Somebody asked something about that video, 9-11 conspiracy theory, but they asked it in a strange way. I forget how he said it. Anyway. But, you know, the Jessica Lynch story is obviously in there. This is the story of 9-11 brought to you by the media that told you the hard truths about JFK, incubator babies, and mobile production facilities, and the rescue of Jessica Lynch. Ah, the heroism. So to know the truth changes our perception of history, which changes the future. It's almost like Orwell, you know, was prescient when he said, who controls the present? The party slogan went. Controls the past, who controls the past, controls the future, because it shapes your perception of things. And so with that, uh, we got to play another clip before um, Julie wants to strangle me on Valentine's Julie Friday. Because <laughs> we're killing it with the bumps and stuff. But, you know, I think we will play this. Thomas Jefferson modeled the Declaration of Independence on a scandalous divorce case. The The case is kind of weird, and it's, you know, whatever. But if this is, you know, if he if he literally used case notes from this divorce case as part of the, you know, to write the Declaration of Independence, then it definitely, what do you, what do you how would you put it, de-romanticizes the story considerably. So anyway, for a little bit of perspective from the Weird History YouTube channel, Thomas Jefferson modeled the Declaration of Independence on a scandalous divorce case. Go ahead, please. Not a lot of people know that before Thomas Jefferson was a president or even a founding father, he was actually a lawyer. And one of his cases, an infamous divorce involving an affair with a British governor, rumors of impotency, and a shocking death directly affected the future of America. Today on Weird History, we're looking at how a scandalous divorce case helped shape the Declaration of Independence. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History channel and let us know what other tasty morsels of founding father gossip you'd like to hear about. Okay, we the people of the United States should have signed a prenup. So... How did the dissolution of one random couple's marriage help Thomas Jefferson formulate the words of the document that would create one of the most powerful nations in history? To answer that, let's start with the marriage itself. Dr. James Blair was a well-known and respected physician in the Williamsburg area of Virginia. Catherine Kitty Eustace strolled into town on a visit with her mother, Margaret Eustace, and immediately hit it off with the doctor who was rumored to be on the verge of inheriting a fortune from his politically and financially powerful father. That might have had something to do with Kitty's immediate attraction to Dr. Blair. But hey, maybe he was also really funny. 
Within just a few months, Eustace and Blair got engaged. They married in 1771, only to separate almost immediately. Eustace moved in with her mother, who lived close by, and filed three different claims against Blair, including one asking for alimony. It's not a big leap to assume that the marriage between Kitty Eustace and Dr. James Blair probably wasn't based on love. In a letter to Anne Blair, her sister-in-law, Eustace wrote she only married Blair because of how much the Blair family loved her, which is a weird reason to marry somebody. There might be some truth to that. Though Blair's reputation as a successful physician on the verge of inheriting his ailing father's vast fortune might have been more than the proverbial cherry on top. The moment she moved out, Eustace sued for alimony and lost. She was ordered to move back in with her husband, and actually did so for four months. But nothing about their relationship improved. It's kind of hard to get cuddly with someone who just tried to sue you, but they literally had no choice. There's nothing worse than being unhappy in a relationship and not being able to leave. And Dr. James Blair and Kitty Eustace really were trapped in every sense of the word. Divorce was illegal in Virginia, which fell under British rule at the time. To file for divorce, residents needed to appeal to Parliament, which rarely ended up granting it. Furthermore, this was well before telephones or email, so getting that appeal to Parliament in the first place was a lengthy process. Back in the day, marriages typically didn't happen for love, but rather for financial security and creating families, especially in the flourishing colonies in America. In 155 years of its existence as a British colony, not a single divorce was granted. Therefore, a lawyer working on a case like that of Eustace's and Blair's would not only have to prove that their specific case warranted divorce, but also that the divorce should be legal at all. More on that in a bit. There might have been a reason why Kitty wanted to end the relationship so abruptly after their wedding. According to an anonymous letter, Blair was incompetent, or unable to perform his husbandly duties. Ouch. Blair had previously experienced seizures due to a mysterious health condition, so it's not unthinkable that he was physically diminished somehow, which could have led to trouble in the bedroom. Regardless, the rumor spread, adding fuel to the fire of the doomed marriage. Another portion of the letter, apparently written by the colonial version of Gossip Girl, also came to the public's attention. This excerpt claimed that the old lady, Kitty Eustace's mother, persists her daughter is still a maid, implying that Blair and Eustace were either unable or unwilling to consummate their relationship. The story gets even juicier. In September 1771, around four months after Kitty Eustace and Dr. James Blair married, the fourth Earl of Dunmore, John Murray, came to Williamsburg. The Eustaces had actually known Murray for a while and had been quite friendly with him when he'd been governor of New York. It's good to be friends with a governor. Eustace began spending time with Murray, even bringing him gifts. This was all done while she was still married to Dr. Blair and publicly feuding with him. This stirred up quite the scandal. Rumors spread that Eustace was having an affair with the governor, to the point where Blair even confronted Murray himself. But Murray threatened to remove Blair's brother from his position on the governor's council, and the doctor dropped the accusations. Kind of sounds like an episode of Jerry Springer. Someone should throw a chair. So what does any of this have to do with Thomas Jefferson or the Declaration? Glad you asked, because here's where Jefferson enters the story. In November of 1772, 
Thomas Jefferson wasn't yet a founding father of America. He was one of the most prominent lawyers in Virginia, whom Dr. James Blair hired to represent him in court. Because no precedent for divorce existed in the colonies, the case was not only about advocating for the end of a single marriage, but for the cause of divorce as a whole, which is what made this case so special. Here's a quick law history lesson. In the 18th century, a law called Partus Sequitur Ventrum stated that whatever a person's mother was classified as, the child was also. For example, in the 1770 case of Samuel Howell, that law meant that he was an indentured servant. Howell's white grandmother was punished for having a black child out of wedlock by being ordered into indentured servitude. Her child, Howell's mother, remained a servant until she turned 31, but gave birth to Howell before then. Because of partus sequitur ventrum, Howell, too, had to be a servant. It's kind of a bad law. Thomas Jefferson represented Howell, and his defense was built around the argument that all men are born free years before the Declaration of Independence was written. Still, the judge ruled against Howell, who later escaped servitude thanks to a gift of money from Jefferson himself. Now, that's a great lawyer. For these radical views, Jefferson appeared to be the right man to advocate for the radical act of divorce, which is why Blair sought him out. In a lot of ways, Thomas Jefferson was a counterculture figure in those days. Sort of like a colonial hippie, like a guy in a powdered wig running a pirate radio station. His choices to represent Samuel Howell and Dr. James Blair reflected his desire for revolutionary change, especially because a success for Blair would offer a big challenge to British rule. Divorce laws in colonial Virginia were dictated by the laws of the British Empire, so fighting them was a fight for America's independence. This is one way the case was part of a long process that laid the groundwork for Jefferson's later work on the Declaration of Independence. In December of 1772, this historical soap opera experienced another shocking twist. Dr. James Blair died. This was bad news for Thomas Jefferson, because you can't have a groundbreaking divorce case if there's no husband to divorce. But the story was far from over. As one final posthumous middle finger to Kitty, Blair left nothing to his estranged wife. His property stayed in limbo, and his wife was granted none of his resources. Kitty Eustace sued, but was denied access to the doctor's assets anyway. Undaunted by the court's ruling against her, she turned to the General Court of Virginia for her appeal. Notably, John Murray, the governor of Virginia and Eustace's alleged fling, was a co-judge on the case, because this really was an olden days soap opera come to life. Eustace hired Thomas Jefferson's cousin, John Randolph, and Patrick Henry, yep, that Patrick Henry, to represent her. Give me my inheritance or give me death. Meanwhile, John Blair Jr., Dr. James Blair's brother, hired Edmund Pendleton and James Mercer to represent his brother's estate. Jefferson served as consultant on the case, compiling a ton of notes that later served to aid his work on the Declaration of Independence. With Dr. James Blair dead, the focus of the case shifted from divorce to inheritance, and whether Kitty Eustace's spousal claim to Blair's properties was legitimate. So what does that mean? Basically, the conversation had shifted to whether the relationship had been consummated, because the law was weirdly obsessed with that at the time, and whether infidelity had occurred on Eustace's end. That meant the court grew intensely interested in Eustace's sex life. And as a reminder, the man she was rumored to have had an affair with was co-judge on the case. 
Yeah, it was messy. If the marriage had been consummated, Eustace was entitled to the estate in accordance with Virginia law. The court case then became about whether or not the couple had had sex. Eustace's side argued that she had, and that even if they hadn't, that it was Blair's fault because he was impotent. Bit of a weird defense. It essentially boils down to, they definitely had sex, unless they didn't. Meanwhile, the lawyers representing Blair's estate argued consummation had not occurred. The argument wasn't made public for decency reasons, according to Thomas Jefferson's notes, but the court ruled in Eustace's favor. So if Kitty Eustace really did marry Dr. James Blair for his money, she got her wish. After she won the case and she and her mother gained control of all his properties and assets, they promptly auctioned them off. Eustace remarried in 1777, but turned up alone in Williamsburg in 1787 and passed away one year later. You could say it was karma, but then again, it was also colonial times. People died all the time back then. How does all this tie into the Declaration of Independence? The cases of both Samuel Howell and Dr. James Blair concerned personal liberty in which the governed had no say regarding the laws to which they were subject, laws Thomas Jefferson attempted to overturn using the concept of natural right. If he could argue the dissolution of indentured servitude using enlightenment concepts of self-determination, Jefferson felt he could use the same argument to support the dissolution of an unhappy marriage. Basically, Jefferson proposed that a relationship, be it a romantic or political one, could be dissolved if one side felt and successfully argued that the relationship was no longer beneficial in a material way. That, according to Jefferson, is what true freedom was. And he incorporated these ideas from his case notes when he drafted the Declaration of Independence a few years later. Defending Blair was as much about the case as it was about the future of America. Giving the British authority over divorce in the colonies meant that colonists were not free to govern themselves. They were reliant on the laws of others. The Declaration of Independence claimed freedom from the British, casting off that system, including the British prohibition of divorce. But the newly formed states had their own rules about divorce. The first no-fault divorce laws, meaning divorces that didn't require some proof of wrongdoing on behalf of one or both spouses, weren't passed until 1970. Before then, you couldn't just split up because the relationship had soured. You had to prove that your significant other was at fault for ruining the marriage. And the last state to allow no-fault divorces was New York in 2010. Progress, like football, is frequently a game of inches. Just ask Hall of Fame coach Tommy Jefferson. So what do you think? Would Thomas Jefferson have won that divorce right. case if Don... <laughs> I thought it was entertaining. Hopefully you did too. It's Valentine's Day. We're keeping it bubblegum today, so... Uh, but, you know, in all seriousness, this definitely shifts the perspective of history for some. It definitely de-romanticizes the Declaration of Independence significantly, I think. Not that not that we want to engage in nihilistic deconstruction, but we should know the truth. We'll be right back. You know it, I know it, yeah. We don't have to fall from grace. Put down the weapons you fight with and kill them with kindness. 
Cahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113. Drinksupertea.com. Do you truly want to stay out of the system? Are you prepared to buy into the biggest scam since the Iraqi dinar? If not, then put your money where it belongs, in your possession, not in the hands of an international MLM cartel. At Kettle Moraine Limited, we will provide you with the finest Swiss-minted detachable gram sheets of pure 24-karat gold for hundreds of dollars less than the so-called privately-issued credit cards with elusive gold backing. Gold backing... The only gold that I want is in my back pocket, not backed by promises of an operation even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is suspect of, giving a rating of C-. To get the full story, visit SierraMadrePreciousMetals.com and go to the Valcombi Bullion Vault. Once you have read the whole story about the scam being perpetrated on an unsuspecting public and how you can avoid being a victim by purchasing these beautiful, barterable, tradable sheets of gold at tremendous savings and in the strictest of privacy, be prepared to take the steps to protect your wealth with the purchase of the real deal. Detachable 50-gram gold bars from Kettle Moraine Limited by calling 602-799-8214. Ask about our one-ounce Valcombi detachable bars, which break into one-tenth ounce bars. And don't forget, for all of your precious metal needs, whether buying or having the need to sell, call Kettle Moraine Limited. Remember, no dinar, no celery, and no carrots. If you buy from someone else... Tell them you want AU, not BS. Call Kettle Moraine LTD today at 602-799-8214. Kettle Moraine LTD, 602-799-8214. I want the truth! You can't! So many things I've got to tell you But I'm afraid I don't know how Cause there's a possibility that you look at me differently, love Ever since the first moment I spoke your name From then on I knew that by you being in my life Things were destined to change Cause love So many people use your name in vain Love Those who have 
Welcome back. <laughs> it's weird. I know. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Lupercalia. I can't help myself. Um, speaking of Jefferson and David Barton. Bouncing all over. I know. Um, there was the article that uh, Martin Marty wrote back in 2012. John Fia posted about it on uh, currentpub.com back in 2012. Marty Martin, or excuse me, Martin Marty on David Barton uh, on Thomas Jefferson, May 2nd, 2012. Noted University of Chicago church historian Martin Marty the granddaddy of American religious historians offers his take on David Barton's new book on Thomas Jefferson. Marty thinks Barton is wrong about Jefferson and his Bible, but that is probably because Marty is a liberal smiley face. Here's a taste. He's a Lutheran. And if you want to know about Lutherans, ask David Bursell. Um, you know, from the Anabaptist perspective, this is going down the rabbit hole a little bit. Not really. But, you know, what's interesting here is one of the commenters, Tom Van Dyke, wrote, uh, had the Indians been converted with that text, their heirs would have had no place to go but to what became the humanist wing of the Unitarian Universalist Church. This is a prescient observation um, from Marty and um, an interesting excerpt that Tom Van Dyke grabs. And that, you know, if you listen to David Bursow, that's his, you might say in an, in an, in a sense, that's, uh, kind of his, that's uh, David Bursow's criticism of Lutheranism. It's very um, licentious in nature. The idea that, you know, I don't know, maybe what Bonhoeffer might call cheap grace. And so many things that David Bursow has gone back and realized are very important. It's interesting, you know, I think of Chuck Missler saying that he was wrong about certain things along the way he'd been wrong about certain things, biblically speaking, and he said the more the more I go along, the more I realize when I'm wrong, it's usually because I didn't take the Bible literally enough. And that's basically what Bursow is saying when he says, you know, you go back and look at what was important to the early church and the historical faith as he you know puts it in this context and they took the bible literally and did what it says but you know along the way we sort of get separated from that and don't realize realize how important that is so this comment you know that that was the humanist wing of the unitarian universalist church the unitarian universalist church is humanist and the question in all of this is always who's in charge, who decides?
which is why I posed the question the other day, I think to start the week, Monday I think it was. I think I talked about that on Monday with Mitzi. If you research our American Revolutionary founding, at, you know, from a Christian perspective, let's say, really from any perspective, but to get to the bottom of these things, let's be, let's be, um, you know, all the words, all the terminology has been conscripted. What do you do? Let's be honest. Maybe that's a good way to put it. If you research our American Revolutionary founding, keep in mind two questions. Who's in charge? Who decides? God or man? Because, you know, there's this argument, you know, Christian nation. Some people have said, I think it was Fia who said that it's, it's the question is flawed. And I would say it actually, you know, because who was it? It was um, Glenn and Philly who said that John MacArthur says nations aren't Christian people are um, founded as a Christian nation is it, it smacks of dominionism right whether intentionally or otherwise stick around we'll be right back God has made us love it's true I've really you are tuned in to the republic broadcasting network visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org hello 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 from beautiful colorado my name is samuel jung k and i am currently the lead shilajee hunter and master herbalist for colorado shilajee company in this video series i will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by mother earth i think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called shilajee as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful colorful colorado you may already know Shilajit by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shilajit literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shilajit has been in use for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee that's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumer's house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. 
visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Are you sick of censorship? TLB Talk is the cure. TLB stands for truth, liberty, and balance. We are the newest and most unique social media platform to hit the internet. We were built out of necessity because Big Tech, Big Pharma, and Big Brother are out of control. The only thing bigger than them is when we the people are united. With that vision, TLB Talk was born. Our battlefield is in cyberspace. The battle we're in can be won by clicks of buttons and voting with your wallet. TLB Talk has no hidden agendas, no corporate funding, and we do not sell, trade, or give away any of your information. Our platform runs off of generous donations of members and merchandise profits. So please, check out our site. It's the best around. And be sure to stop by our store. It's loaded with items that'll have you feeling a sense of member pride and victory. Come unite with us today at TLBTalk.com and join the social media revolution. She's super talented. It's Valentine's Day, so we're bumping Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Lupercalia. Um, it's, you know, it's weird. It's a strange mix of music and subject matter, but it is what it is. So happy Valentine's Day. Um, to finish the thought in a moment, first... One of the best, and we should play this. I mentioned it earlier. When it comes to the, you know, our American revolutionary founding and, you know, Christian nation, not Christian nation. What was the, you know, faith and ideological leaning of the movers and shakers? Um, a very 
substantive dive on the subject that I think is worth a listen is um, oh god The video is titled uh, Worthy American Founding Fathers Christian with Greg Frazier. Peter Gemmon's interview um, with Greg Frazier. Very interesting. And so Greg, you know, included and Peter included it in the uh, video description. This is the Bible Sojourner um YouTube channel. So in the notes, or in the uh, description it reads, Dr. Frazier has also provided a handout entitled, Why is the Christian America, Why is the Christian America view dangerous? It can be found here uh, as a PDF file. And he goes through some reasons that are that are, you know, thought provoking, I think. Maybe I should just go through that. But it's very interesting. So, you know, what's Greg Frazier's background on the subject matter? He got interested like so many people, kind of like what I'm doing right now, you know, going back over the ground that guys like Frazier and Berceau and uh, Martin Marty and John Fia and, you know, many others have gone over already. Interesting, you know, like what's really going on here? I mean, I feel like something is amiss. The, I mean, you know, come on. Looking at these guys, you you have to. Um, what does Fraser call it? He calls it. Um, I forget. And he religious language. Um, how does he put it? I don't know. We could we could throw in some excerpts. Maybe we'll do that going forward into the week. But you know, he talks about there's a particular term that he uses anyway, and he coined the term theistic rationalism, which is interesting. Uh because he says you know, there are the, you know, it's the old technique of infamy. You have these two sides that are collided together. And he says, I think of something in the middle, what I call theistic rationalism. And he says, I argue that <clears throat> uh, the key founders, and he researched eight, eight guys. And um, all of them are this, you know, of this theistic rationalist flavor, as he refers to it. And he said, if I included a, a a ninth, I think he said, well, let me, let me, he said, um, he argues that the key founders, um, are this, this, uh, a 
of this theistic rationalist flavor. People talk about, you know, they lump things one side or the other. And um, maybe we should just, maybe we should just play a clip. I should let him speak in his own words real fast. Maybe a short clip. Let's see if I can. Um, yeah. I'm going to get in more trouble. It's it's Julie Friday, so, you know. Um, the questions that I posed on Monday, research our American revolutionary founding, keeping in mind, you know, be honest. Who's in charge? Who decides? And you will find that there's this humanist perspective. It's a Romans chapter one kind of thing for the, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. They say, that's okay. We got it from here. And the deistic perspective lends itself to that handsomely. We're fantastic. We got it. Look how smart we are. I mean, come on, God. Have you not seen the scientific revolution? We just came out of the scientific revolution. Look how fantastic we are. We're so fantastic. We got it from here. We could take it from here. Thanks for your help, but we got it. We're good. Which sounds like the Church of Laodicea. So who's in charge? Who decides? I.e. God or man. And if it's man, it's not really man, is it? Because you're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Separate discussion. Who's in charge? Who decides? That's the dividing line that we, it's so subtle and imperceptible is, you know, is uh, Raphael Warnock right? Is the early church socialist? Absolutely not. But who can say decisively or you know clearly who can who can make that delineation and it's in who who's in charge who decides and the second question is what in our founding document what in our founding can one point to as uniquely biblically orthodox or christian in nature if you if you you know if you like if you prefer what is not borrowed? What is not commingled with the Platonic Academy? Again, borrowing from Tertullian, what does the Academy have to do with Jerusalem? Plato's Academy. What is uniquely biblically orthodox or Christian in nature, if you like? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. There's a lot of Christianese duct taped and you know so um speaking of greg frazier he um talks about how you know when you use terms like providence and things like that that's just being sort of opportunistic you're not that's not the god of the bible so these guys, they borrow stuff. We can just let him speak in his own words. We're the American Founding Fathers Christian with Greg Frazier. Peter Gemmon interviewing him. And um, the 727 mark or something like that. Can we play that, please? By chance. 
while we wait. Um, the way that Fraser puts it, um, the Washington Papers, you know, that's another myth. Speaking of the Jefferson Declaration of Independence, you know, scandalous divorce case, um, in this video that we're going to play a clip from in a second, we're the American Founding Fathers Christian with Greg Frazier. He debunks the, you know, Washington kneeling in prayer story, you know, another myth that we've been fed. And, and um, in that discussion, he says, you know, uh, the concept of God words, that's how he puts it, God words. In the Declaration of Independence, Washington always used God words in place of any term specific to Christianity, the Bible or any other uh, religion, uh, words like divine hand or author, providence, stuff like that. And um, so... You know, that's not the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. That's a deistic turn of phrase. Not a personal, knowable Christian God who wants to know us, so we cry out, Abba, Father. Anyway, yes, we want to start at 728. Um, so this, this is... Um, this is how Greg Frazier puts it. Go ahead, please. Culmination of more than 20 years of research um, on this and, and reading a lot of stuff. And so I came up actually with, the, with another term for a position sort of in the middle, uh, which I call theistic rationalism. And I argue that the key founders, now one of, here's an important distinction too often people talking about it, especially on the Christian America side, lump all the founders together, and they just talk about the founders. The founders, the founders did this, the founders said this, the founders believed this. But if you just think about it logically, um, can you say that about an entire population of politicians today? Can you just say Congress says or believes or politicians believe? That's a good point. Um, these guys were individuals. And they all had their own backgrounds, their own training, their own religious beliefs, etc. They weren't just a lump sum. The only thing you can legitimately say about them collectively, or one of the few things, is what's in the Constitution, because that's what they wrote together. Otherwise, you have to deal with them as individuals. And um, so what I did was look at the arguably the eight most important founders. That's what my book the Religious Beliefs of America's Founders is based on a study of the religious beliefs of the eight key founders, as I call them, um, which maybe I can bring up the, the slide. To, yeah. And, do and that yet? yeah, let's bring that up. And uh, maybe while you're, while you're thinking one, one of the questions I would have too on that is how, how do you determine what a founding father is? Like why, why are these eight considered so yeah, prominent? On this slide. Okay, perfect. So let me pull this up and, um, so here's the basis I, I went by. Who are the most influential uh, persons concerning the founding documents? The, the, because religious beliefs come in, are a matter of ideas. 
And ideas shape everything. And so who influenced the ideas that the country is founded upon? And that's the two founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Who were the most influential people on those documents? So you you end up with, with the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the original draft, and then John Adams and Benjamin Franklin were also on the committee and made some changes and so forth. So you've got them. And then... Uh, Franklin, of course, is also part of the Constitution, but not very influential. And then individuals who are really influential concerning the U.S. Constitution, James Madison, who's generally known as the father of the Constitution, although that's not true. That would actually should be Governor Morris, who's on the list here that no one's ever heard of before. But James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, Governor Morris, and James Wilson. Madison, Morris, and Wilson were most influential on the Constitution, arguably. Hamilton also had significant influence on the Constitution and then also in putting it into effect. And then Washington, of course, is the 500-pound gorilla in the room and uh, chaired the the Constitutional Convention and, of course, is the first president putting it into, into effect and so on. So these are the people that I thought were uh, the eight most important, the key American founders. Uh, and, that, and you could debate about that. I was at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where they display the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and they have these little nodules all around the room. And uh, of the first eight nodules, that they, and each of the nodules highlights a founder. And of the first eight nodules, seven of them were seven of my people. Hmm. So, uh, and I and I didn't just this randomly either. I looked at what various historians say and so on and so forth. So anyway, these are the people that I I think were arguably most influential in terms of ideas, and that's where religion matters. Um, so that's the basis on which I, I chose these people. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I guess I know you said you said you kind of think that people on the right and on the left are are both wrong. And so you've kind of created a middle ground. So you want to kind of, well, first of all, I guess, why why is it, it seems like this this argument is so heated a lot of times. And so why do you think? Actually, in the Christian homeschool curriculum and things like that, a lot of times you'll have you know, very adamant statements made about these founding fathers trying to claim them for Christianity. And then on the other side, same thing. Why is it such a big debate? And then I guess maybe could you walk us through some evidence on how we should think through it and how we can even evaluate these individuals? I, I do that. My presentation, I talk about basically four, four reasons that the Christian I, America idea is popular the first one is those who promote it are not historians. Uh, the people who write all the books and do the and and do tours and all of that kind of stuff, they aren't historians. They're they're self-proclaimed historians. Um, but most of the people who write books about it, some of them are, don't have really much of any credentials, but some of them are lawyers. And what's a what's a lawyer's job? Is a lawyer's job to present both sides of the argument and treat everything fairly and equally, or is the lawyer's job to grab one side and and that and only push the one side? And that's way, the way you get it from uh, those who are lawyers. And then others who write about it are pastors. 
And the pastors are just taking information from other people. They're not historians. They don't go and study it. And so they they hear, okay, this guy says this, and so they just latch on to it. So that's a lot of it. There are a couple of individuals who, um, frankly, make a lot of money off of, off of it. And um, so that's part of the issue. Secondly, human nature seems to seems to lead us to want to believe that our nation is specially blessed by God. Hmm. You know, the Japanese, when they bombed Pearl Harbor, did it on behalf of their God Emperor. Uh, the Romans believed that, that they were specially blessed by the gods, and so they actually cut out the Minuteman, the middleman, and made their emperors gods themselves. Same thing with the Egyptians. And you go through great civilizations throughout American history, and they always believe that the god that god or the gods have specially chosen them and specially blessed them and i would argue people think i don't like america because of this is i i always start my classes with with students that tell them look i am so blessed to have been born in the united states of america i i there's not another country in the world i would want to live in uh i feel completely blessed. i think the united states is the greatest country in the history of the world i think the american political system is the greatest ever ever devised but it was devised by men not by god and so it's not perfect uh but it is the best and i wouldn't want to live anywhere else so i fully embrace that aspect but i don't feel a need to conclude from that that the united states is somehow especially blessed by god Sparta had one of the worst, most horrendous regimes in world history, and they lasted 800 years. Hmm. Uh, and uh, people ask me often when I get done with things, you know, how long do you think America has? I said, I don't know, tomorrow, 100 years, 500 years? I don't know, because God doesn't do it on that basis. He has a plan. It was devised before the foundation of the earth, and it goes. everything goes according to God's plan. So I don't feel the need to believe that the nation was specially... I'm open to it if I see evidence of that. First of all, I don't see any revelation about it. I don't see it in Malachi or in Revelation. Uh, I don't see any revelation about it, but I'm open to the evidence, and I was when I did my research. Um, yeah, that's but, probably... Well, uh, so there's that's the more... second reason. A third reason... Yeah. There are a couple more reasons. Obviously, is four reasons. Anyway, we're we're running out of time. We, you know, you could watch the whole thing. And by the way, it's interesting. He mentions the eight key key founders that he researched for the Declaration of Independence. It's Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin. And for the Constitution, it was James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, Governor Morris, which, like he said, most have never heard of. James Wilson. Also, probably a guy most never have never heard of um, or don't remember from history class. And um, it's interesting, the story that he tells about Hamilton at the end of this interview. That's very interesting. Uh, so, you know, listening to guys like Greg Frazier, um, it's very... Um, it's very informative. It fleshes the discussion out that ends up being a, you know, without without this kind of um, fleshing out and substantive sort of background, it ends up being a sort of caricaturization of history. And, you know, no particular offense, but I think that's what David Barton is engaging in. It's, you know, there's an agenda. 
and I like the way that Greg Fraser puts it. You know, I I tried to set my presuppositions and superstitions of thing and things aside and just see what this history is telling me. I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong, but you know, I, I find no evidence to the contrary is what he's saying. So, you know, like I said, you'll indefinitely bump into David Barton. John Fia is, um, interesting, you know, and as far as the historians go, you know, Martin, Marty, Greg Fraser, um, David Berceau, and then the other guys, you know, that uh, I mentioned that uh, Fia mentioned, uh, Throckmorton and Coulter, obviously, who are not historians, but um, debunked blow for blow David Barton's work. Um, and, you know, it's not about this guy's right, this guy's wrong. It's about what is... What is the truth of our American founding? And, you know, very humanist in nature, very man will decide, man's in charge, man will decide. Which, you know, the evidence is everywhere. Again, the Statue of Liberty, Lady Liberty, the androgynous Libertas, a.k.a. Prometheus with the eternal flame of illumination that he will give to man so that we can become gods you know that's i mean is that not what the apotheosis of washington is about depicting man as god anyway happy valentine's day i hope it was informative perhaps i don't know infotaining or whatever today a little bubble gum for valentine's day as always, it truly is an honor and a pleasure. Please pray for one another and support the network. Take care. God bless. We'll catch you on the other side. Simple with Kalwara Shilaji. Fact bit number three. Shilaji is the supreme yoga vaha. Within Ayurveda, Shilaji is the singular substance that towers above all other herbs, herbal minerals, and earth-made adaptogens. Yoga vaha refers to substances that have the ability to synergistically make better and carry other substances to its prescribed destination. In the case of Shilaji, most any herb, food, or mineral is amplified with ionic potential, superimposing superior efficacy with increased cellular energy and absorption rates. One of the best applications for Shilaji is to add a drop or two into your favorite herbal tincture and foodstuff. Simply put, Shilaji makes other substances more effective. Look for the Gold Mountain and Medical Symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth.